the uh, newspaper industry's original sin was to become so overly reliant on advertising revenue. It's really what set them up for this current crisis. But not only that, it also degraded news content for well over 100 years. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. Although this was once hotly debated, it's almost become common knowledge that journalism is now in a state of crisis. The narrative typically goes something like this. For more than 100 years, journalism was funded primarily through advertising. And for most of the 20th century, that model seemed to work. But then Google and Facebook came up with a better ad product and now earn the vast majority of online ad dollars which really shouldn't have come as a surprise. Why would anyone take out an ad in a local paper when you can micro-target the exact kinds of people you're trying to sell to? When that advertising money dried up, so too did the reporting. Newsrooms shut down, reporters were laid off, and many places became news deserts, regions where there's no local reporting at all. And perhaps unsurprisingly, places that have no journalism also have lower voter turnout and more corruption. There's a great deal of hand-wringing about the role the platforms played in all of this. That if it weren't for their technological disruption, journalism would still be in its heyday. And I suppose there's elements of truth to this. Platforms do bear some responsibility. But this narrative belies a deeper, thornier issue, which is that the ad model never really worked that well, because it ultimately tied journalism to a for-profit model. If we are going to reimagine journalism, perhaps we should start with this as a first principle. This idea is at the core of Victor Picard's work. He's one of the world's experts on the crisis in journalism and media and broadcast policy more broadly. And his latest book is called Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. Victor argues that the market-based model has been undermining journalism since its inception, which means that a new generation of journalism policy, such as competition policy, media bargaining codes like in Australia, labor subsidies like in Canada, will only get us so far in addressing this problem. To really get at the root of this crisis, Victor says we need to completely separate journalism from its commercial incentives. Instead of treating journalism as a product to be owned and sold, he argues we should treat it as a public good. There was a time when the very idea that journalism was in trouble was widely debated. But that's no longer the case. Not only is there widespread acceptance that journalism needs help, but policymakers around the world seem to be increasingly willing to do something about it. Which means that now, more than ever, we should really be paying attention to people like Victor Picard. I think... There's pretty broad understanding about the dire straits of journalism at the moment, um, particularly in the U.S. And I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on just why it's so bad and um, how it's gotten so bad. But, but first, I'd like to talk a bit about how we got here. And maybe we could start at the beginning. Um, how did the founding fathers view journalism? <laughs> Sure. And there's a number of caveats that I think are warranted before we, we start uh, 
invoking the 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 the, found, the so-called founding fathers. Um, of course, they're not people that we should necessarily uh, romanticize. Many of them were uh, slave owners, and um, you know certainly were not the most enlightened people on the planet. But one thing that they did understand, at least intuitively, was the press, the press system, which at that time was very different compared to what we have today. But there was this notion that to have self-governance, you needed to have an informed populace. You needed to protect institutions of the press. Even if we were just talking about pamphleteers at that time, there was this notion that there was an affirmative duty that the government should ensure that there's some kind of free and by implication functional press system. And part of this can be seen uh, quite clearly in the first uh, policy debate in the United States in the, in the late uh, 1700s, 1790s around po the postal system. And the postal system at that time was primarily a newspaper delivery infrastructure. Um, by the early 1800s, still as much as 95% of the weight of the post was comprised of newspapers. So it wasn't just people writing letters home to mom. It was the circulation of newspapers and of information throughout society. And that intent was embedded in the rationale for it? Absolutely. There was, a, there was a raging debate about how do we pay for this infrastructure? Should we ensure that the postal system pays for itself? So in other words, charges... Uh, individual uh, consumers, subscribers, you know, the cost of the post, or should it be heavily uh, subsidized? And there was a debate about whether there was this kind of commerce function, or should we see the uh, postal system as primarily being part of an educational service? The founders thought that the newspaper, that the press itself was too precious to leave entirely dependent on commerce, that we needed to subsidize it. Today, we would say this was highly socialistic, but at that time, it was fairly commonsensical that you would not depend on the market to provide the news and information that democratic society requires. One of the big transitions away from some of that subsidization is the emergence of advertising in the industry. Um, and in some ways, you argue that, that some of our blame on platforms for this current moment is a bit misplaced because really they've just perfected a financial model of journalism that is over 100 years old. Um, now, they've done it in a very particular way that has a host of other problems, which we can talk about. Right. Um, but ultimately, the idea that a big portion of journalism is going to be financed via advertising um, has been around for a long time. So can you describe a bit what happened um, when American newspapers first moved to this model? Sure. And again, there there is some necessary nuance to, to address here because, in fact, recently I've received a bit of pushback from people who ha are, are very um, adamant to point out that advertising was around from, you know, the dawn of, of the press system in the U.S. In fact, many of the earliest advertisements were for, uh, for slaves. So I want to be clear, there was advertising, but early on, the earliest newspapers, there was much more of a diverse uh, revenue stream. But once you saw this transition, this dramatic shift towards this reliance on advertising revenue. That's when you start seeing mass production. This is when publishers wanted to reach broader audiences. And this is where, where Gerald Baldesty notes a change in content, where publishers no longer saw their audience as primarily citizens of, you know, 
combatants in a you know in a in a within a polity, um, but more saw them as primarily consumers. And this gradually changes the content, changes the basic business model of the press. It changes everything. Now, again, we you know, sometimes maybe it's overstated, and it didn't change overnight. But certainly by the early 1900s, typically a newspaper relied on 80% of its revenues from advertising, 20% from subscribers or newsstand sales. And that advertising component includes classifieds then, right? That's right. That also includes classifieds, which is also an important point for our contemporary moment when it's, people are very quick to blame Google and Facebook, which I think they do deserve a lot of blame. And we'll get there, I'm sure. We'll sweep through history before we get there. That's right. There. And I'm, I, I'm so keen on that. I think it's really important for us to historicize this. And because few people understand this longer history, I mean, I've somewhat flippantly referred to this as the uh, newspaper industry's original sin was to become so overly reliant on advertising revenue. It's really what set them up for this current crisis. But not only that, it also degraded uh, news content for well over 100 years. Whenever we hear this thing about yellow journalism, I mean, that really was like the fake news problem of the early 1900s. And it was all a product of this over-commercialization, this idea that we will do anything. We will sensationalize stories. We need to just capture people's attention so that we can monetize that. I mean, that connection between financial incentive and form of content is is so critical throughout this discussion because it becomes relevant again, I think, now as well, that the 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 way in which you make money does to some degree play a role in the actual outcome of the content. And you write that at that moment, in this transition, it became common for mass circulation media to simultaneously attract working class audiences and promote reactionary politics via trivial, sensational, and untrue reporting. Like, I'm sure that was around before, but if this was being kind of turbocharged by the financial model, that's a pretty big harbinger for where we where journalism went, right? That's right. And, you know, that I'm describing the, you know, the newspapers, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and it sounds very familiar to us today. And, you know, there's always a, 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 a risk of oversimplifying, being overly reductive, whatnot. But I think the bigger problem is that we often don't see these connections between content and structure, especially economic structures, economic logics and imperatives. And again, I think it you need to understand that to understand what happened to the industry today. And to show also, it really drives home that we never had an ideal press system, uh, not in the US, not in Canada. You know, really, there are very few places around the world. I think we could say there are varying degrees of of horrible uh, news production, but um, but yeah, is I that mean, a quote? Varying degrees of horrible. <laughs> I, I I hope not. Uh, it's not it's not a very good one. But um, but yeah, it's just you know I'm I'm trying to really um, put this into context that there's no need to romanticize some golden era of of the press. There were times where it wasn't as bad as as it is now. Um, and I think we can allow for that nuance, but also recognize that the commercial press never lived up to democratic requirements or expectations, and and it's only gotten worse. And and that's I think that's key because oftentimes when people hear me today saying like the journalism crisis, we got to do something, they assume that I'm talking about going back to a previous era or trying to shore up the model that we have today. And 
I'm, I'm advocating for nothing of the sort. Another lore of journalism is the around professional practices that emerged soon after that transition. And one of the narratives you hear often is that there was sort of this enlightened moment where journalists decided that things like objectivity and fact-checking and um, moderation to some degree were going to be values of the practice of journalism. But you have a slightly more cynical view of that. Um, Look, why did journalists all, all of a sudden start caring about being more moderate and being more objective and being less less political to a certain degree? Sure. And I do think some of it was very well-meaning, so I don't want to always sound cynical. And I think at some point you'll start hearing my optimism um, come out. Again, we'll get, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> but for now, let's just be dark and cynical. <laughs> yeah. And it's often, this history is often narrated as, you know, a cultural progression or, you know, just like democratic evolution that the press got better at what it was doing, became more socially responsible. But this really misses this key part, which again, goes back to these kind of these economic imperatives that were driving almost the entire uh, newspaper industry. Um, and there was beginning, to, you were beginning to see a public backlash. We mentioned yellow journalism. I mean, that was something that came, that was being hurled at newspaper publishers for irresponsible uh, journalism, for these kind of commercial excesses that were becoming increasingly evident. And so really to stave off this public outrage, but more importantly, to stave off any kind of regulatory intervention this is when you see the leading uh, journalism schools become established. This is when you see a lot of these professional norms begin to be further defined. And it was really a way for editors and publishers to sort of placate uh, the, you know, the, the, the public and policymakers and say, look, we are professional here. We're being uh, responsible in our coverage. We're being objective. And, you know, some of these principles are really important. We don't want to, you know, as much as objectivity needs to be problematized. And I think it's been thoroughly trashed in recent years, this whole notion of this, you know, farcical notion of objectivity, but things like fact-based reporting, that's kind of, that's important. We want that. We don't want that to go away. So some of this was actually a good attempt to try to buffer professional journalism from these commercial pressures. But it's as soon as, soon as those things came into place, you start seeing the commercial pressures, you know, chipping away at them. So I think it's an important history to, to put into that context. So what you're really saying is objectivity and norms of professional journalism were the Facebook oversight board of the early 20th century. One could, could certainly draw a parallel <laughs> there, yes. <laughs> right. um, so another layer aside from commercialism or commercialization that comes into this is certainly in the American context is ideology. And it feels like particularly in the post-war period – where much of the world was moving towards and expanding the role of public broadcasters and various forms of regulatory oversight of journalism, America was both locked in this, to this commercial model, um, but also was dealing with all sorts of ideological debates around socialism and a red scare. <laughs> and I mean, is that the moment that, uh, that this idea, this kind of free market ideology of journalism that seems to pervade American journalism – took real, real root? The short answer is yes. I mean, that's when it really triumphed. It was already there. Um, but I do think what you see in the 40s is such an important 
historical point to make that I hear made so rarely is that where most democratic countries were heading down this social democratic trajectory, not only were they beginning uh, to create, I mean, of course, the BBC had already been around, but they're really starting to bolster their public institutions. It's one of the reasons why we don't have nationalized healthcare in the United States is that we also, in many ways, were going down that same social democratic trajectory. Look at the New Deal. That's precisely what it was trying to do. And it was very popular. It's a very popular project. So whenever you hear about how Americans are just inherently libertarian, um, that's that's really not grounded uh, in historical fact. We were heading towards a much more social democratic arrangement when we had this Cold War hysteria that hit us, that many countries dealt with to some degree, but it hit us really hard here in the U.S. to the point where even the most mildly, uh, you know, regulatory leaning uh, proposals were branded as some sort of socialistic cabal. And it basically left this lasting imprint on all of America's core infrastructures and systems. And it's one of the reasons why we don't have more of a public-oriented uh, broadcast system. It really changed the debate dramatically. And I don't think you can make sense of the current political economy in the United States without looking at that key critical juncture in the post-war 1940s. Hmm. And fast-forwarding again a little bit a few years, the tail end of that Cold War period is really where we saw the rise of cable news and the role that played in kind of reshaping again um, much of the journalism landscape in the U.S. I mean, first, I would I guess I wouldn't quite leave the 40s yet, because I think to make sense of that, you really need to look at, especially around broadcast policy in the States, um, which was about radio, but it's quickly you know mapped onto television as well. And basically, we had a system that was dominated by an oligopoly um, of, of two or three big broadcast uh, corporations. And what's interesting, one of the more radical things that the 1940s FCC, Federal Communications Commission, did in the States was essentially trust bust um, uh, NBC, broke NBC into two, and that's how we got ABC. So we went from two big players to three big players, which, you know, I won't leave your listeners in suspense. That really didn't... <laughs> that wasn't transformative? Did, that didn't, didn't transform the market the didn't click into place? <laughs> not, not quite. Didn't, didn't quite, uh, you know, usher in the great democratic promise that's always been there. And, uh, and so, you know, they quickly... I mean, if you think back to the 30s when we were... Reformers were pushing for... Uh, creating, to call it BBC would be an exaggeration, but they're trying to set aside a huge segment of the spectrum to just nonprofit educational purposes. And that was closer than people realized. That was in the 30s. By 1934, we lost that battle. The next one was, okay, we've got these big, bad monopolies. We've got to break them up. That only went so far. Then it was, okay, now we've got to regulate the hell out of these firms. Um, and they fought hard on that. And, and regulate uh, the content, right? Not just... That's right. I mean, it was always tricky. You know, there was always concern. Again, that that troublesome First Amendment thing. We don't allow for government censorship, but there were some key Supreme Court decisions that said, no, in questions of the public interest, the FCC can make programming um, regulations. And, um, and, and they tried to do that. And they came close to actually creating a meaningful social contract in the mid forties. Um, one of the, one of the key players in that Charles Seatman um, also played a role in, in Canadian uh, broadcast policy history. 
uh, he, he had worked for the BBC. He was the programming director in the, in the UK for many years before he came to the States. So this guy was kind of the Johnny Appleseed of progressive policymaking. And he pushed this thing called the Blue Book. Long story short, they were unsuccessful. And we ultimately ended up at the end of the decade with what was later referred to as the Fairness Doctrine. And um, that's the one policy that most Americans have heard of. They don't really understand what it means. Um, but that was seen even among progressives today that's held up as a sort of high watermark of enlightened progressive media policymaking. At the time, it was seen as a weak consolation prize for these more meaningful structural policy interventions that reformers were pushing for. So what did it do and what were people pushing for beyond that? Well, what it replaced was known as the Mayflower rule or the Mayflower doctrine, which basically uh, forbade uh, broadcasters from politically editorializing altogether. Um, so, I mean, our, our landscape would look very different today if that had remained on the books. But the, and, and it was overwhelmingly supported by, the, again, the public was very much behind these more, these stronger uh, content regulations. It wasn't like the public was saying, get government out of our media, get it off our backs. They were like, they were actually asking for more regulation. We've got to keep these commercial broadcasters in line because we know what's going to happen if we don't have any guardrails. This system's going to go off, you know, it's going to become completely out of control because it's commercially driven, it's profit driven. We need public interest protections. And so the fairness doctrine, what many people do is they conflate it with what's known as the equal time rule, which is like, oh, there are two sides to every debate. You've got to give the same time to each side. That's not what it was. That's something different. What the fairness doctrine mandated was that broadcasters, in order to hold on to their monopolistic rights to the public airwaves, must cover issues, controversial issues of local importance, and to do so in a balanced manner. So it was this affirmative duty. It wasn't about having a balanced debate. It was about going out and covering important stuff, right, important issues, and then and make sure we have many different perspectives on these issues. Finally, get to your question, though. During this long Cold War uh, that never went away, but certainly flared up in the 1980s, um, cable news came out as this kind of feisty alternative. I mean, it was more like almost like community media. It was not this big, you know, corporate driven uh, thing that it is today. And it and wasn't it, on the broadcast. Like it was sat outside of importantly, right? That's a key point. So the whole reason why the whole rationale for being able to regulate the public airwaves is that they are indeed owned by the public. And um, and so once you started moving to this cable format, wasn't using the airwaves, was actually using a, a cable, um, there, those, those regulations no longer applied. And they've been able to use that to their advantage. So for example, people say, if we could just bring back the Fairness Doctrine, which was thrown out in 1987, that'll solve all our problems. Well, that actually would have never, that doesn't pertain to cable television. So that that... That wouldn't that wouldn't help us, I'm afraid. Why did we throw out the Fairness Doctrine? What was the political moment in which that occurred? So that was thrown out in 1987 during the Reagan administration. And it was very much a top-down endeavor. It's again another, you know, historical narration that's gone a little bit awry. Um, it was even among conservatives, conservative activists came to really rely on the Fairness Doctrine because they used that to get their voices onto the airwaves as well. So it was really this group of economic libertarians, especially uh, represented by Mark Fowler, who was was Reagan's FCC chairman. He's the one who famously said that televisions are nothing more than toaster ovens with pictures. 
Uh, he would say things like the public interest is simply what the public is interested in. You know, there's no special category. Um, and this was really this shift towards a more libertarian um, paradigm uh, that really took hold in the in the 80s and in many ways is still the dominant paradigm today. I think it's under increasing strain um, here in the United States, but it was another kind of critical juncture that put us down another another path. And and we're certainly in a in a in a very different place now. Um, and I want I want to talk a little bit about the the particular dynamics at play in the current media ecosystem. But before we do so, I wonder if you could just summarize the sort of root of your concern and the costs of this decline on our democracy. Sure, and again, it's it's, it's still a fairly depressing uh, tale. We haven't gotten to the to the optimism yet, but. I do. I mean, we all learn in school that democracy requires a a free press. You know, this is something that's fairly intuitive, but I think that there's a disconnect from learning that in school and then really thinking about in real time what is happening to our journalistic institutions and what that's doing to our democracy. And now we have, especially here in the U.S., but I know you know, these problems are being dealt with in democratic countries around the globe. Absolutely. That we have these communities, we're increasingly referring to them as news deserts that have lost all local news media whatsoever. So we have these natural experiments where we actually can test what happens when a local community loses its local newspaper. And we're finding, no surprise, we're finding that fewer people are voting. There's less civic engagement there's higher levels of corruption in local uh, governments. There's uh, there's even fewer people running for office. I mean, there, there's just like subtle uh, shifts that even if these aren't necessarily direct causal relationships, we can certainly see this correlation where losing the local newspaper is harming local democracy and uh, in, in civic life. And I think gradually, this is still a, a fight that we're that we're having everywhere. But I think we're slowly realizing that the market alone is not going to provide the journalism that we need. I mean, basically going back to what the the founders of the U.S. Republic already knew. But it, I think it's really driving home that there is not a purely commercial future for local journalism. And if we could just internalize that into our policy debates, I think we that would be a real progress. So let's dive into the policy debates then, because there are many. And as you say, different countries are approaching this challenge in different ways. Um, and in, I think in some ways, we're in this almost golden age of journalism policy now. Um, so I want to talk about a few things that are being debated in this space. Um, but first, just based on that market failure point you ended on, um, one theory here is that um, it is a market failure. The market has led to these negative externalities, and therefore the solution is to fix the market. So we don't need to talk about state subsidizing journalism or public journalism, which we'll talk about. We just need to make this market more efficient. And that's in a way what Australia is doing with their media bargaining code. Um, I talked to Rod Sims a few weeks ago, and he's really making that case that, look, there might be all sorts of other policy things we can do. But the first thing is we need to make this market work. And to make it work, we need certain interventions in the competition space. So do you think that's adequate? Do you think we can just fix the market and then the problem will solve itself? Short answer is no. Short answer to a long question. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, 
But to unpack that just a little bit, and you're absolutely right. I'm, I'm clearly very fond of using market failure as a kind of framework to understand what's happening, um, partly simply because people get it. It sort of, you know, defines the problem very succinctly. But you're also absolutely right that there are some hazards with adopting that framework. And purist uh, neoclassical economists will, will think of, you know, and you, oftentimes in textbooks, it's like this small paragraph of like, on these rare occasions when the market isn't working the way it should, that will necessitate government intervention. Um, we just need to do a little tweaks at the margins and things will go back to, you know, the harmonious status quo. I am very clear to say that I identify what I refer to as systemic market failure that's basically baked into the commercial media system. You're never able to get rid of it. You have to, the best you can do is create public alternatives to the, to the market-based model. The second best is to constantly have these public interests, you know, interventions and protections to prevent these very predictable problems, right? These aren't uh, things that just came out of, out of the blue. Um, but you're right that, you know, for purist neoclassical economists, they can just say, well, we just need to, you know, do a few little tiny, uh, you know, nips and tucks here. It'll be fine. And I do, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think clearly we're seeing something that is irredeemable, especially for providing local journalism. We need, we don't need to shore up these commercial models. We need to create some kind of public alternative here. So is that the difference between a systemic market failure and just a problem of market concentration? Like, is that where you would draw that line? Like maybe competition policy can deal with these like concentration issues, but those are only a part of the systemic market failure. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it could be put differently. These aren't just monopoly problems. These are also capitalism problems. And um, and so you're I mean, I'm a fan. I think that the antitrust club should be on the table in in full view of everyone at all times. It should be something that should be used more often. Uh, a few years ago, I had a great conversation with Lena Khan, actually, who was just recently appointed as a chairwoman of the FTC, which is Incredible. This is where optimism starts coming in here. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a really big deal. And she's amazing. And I, she gets it. And so I agree with her views. And she once cautioned me in using the market failure um, framework precisely for these reasons, that it treats the market as something outside of society. It's like this autonomous thing that every once in a while needs a little bit of, you know, tinkering, but, you know, it works on its own. And she wanted to reframe it as this is based on political decisions. It's a social construct. We as a society design these markets, construct these markets. And that's really what policy should be is really all about. So, so yeah, so I, to go back to your question, I do think too often this all gets reduced to a problem of market concentration. And in many ways, it's, it's the commercial logics. It's not just, you know, and sometimes this comes into play around Facebook. You know, the question of, would this be different if we had 10 Facebooks instead of one? You know, like, what do we get by breaking things up? Sometimes I think we should, but we just have to be very clear about what problems that will fix and what problems that won't touch. So what you're, you're really arguing for is kind of a systemic, bigger systemic solutions to what you're calling systemic failures. And the root of that is increasing the role of public media. Uh, this is something, as you say, that other countries have been much more comfortable with, although 
to limited to varying degrees um, over the past hundred years, um, but is anathema, an anathema in the American debate. Um, so, could you outline just sort of broadly what you mean by public media? Sure, and I use it very expansively, but also with the notion that I mean publicly owned and controlled. So not just public in name only. I'm not just talking about NPR and PBS here in the States, which is what most Americans would think of, but I'm thinking of media that is funded uh, directly from, uh, from the public. Uh, and there are various ways of doing that, whether it's through taxes, whether it's through individual um, vouchers, uh, you know, there, there, there are many different ways of doing this, but the idea is that you're essentially taking journalism out of the market, it is uh, being publicly funded, it is not for profit, um, and it is driven by this public service mission that means you know universal service, universal access, that really provides a baseline level of news and information for all members of society. And I don't think any, even when we're talking about nonprofit, because a lot of times there's conflation of nonprofit and public, nonprofit is still usually privately supported, whether it's a foundation or a benefactor or even individual subscribers. It's, that's still a private institution. We don't talk about that enough. There's a real sense that things like ProPublica or the Marshall Project are kind of replacing public broadcasters, and right. they're not. I mean, they're right. great, but they are, they are as great. you say, they're privately funded, and that brings with it a whole set of issues. That's right. And this, I would trace this back again to that moment in the 40s where I just feel like the political discourse, it, these ideas, this kind of, these kind of social democratic ideas of like taking things that some things are too precious to leave entirely dependent on the market or on uh, you know, private uh, providers. We don't even have this vocabulary in the US. We don't really have a vocabulary for market failure anymore in the US. Um, so this, our entire discourse has been impoverished to the point where our political imagination um, is so constricted that most Americans would never make that distinction between nonprofit and public. And I think it's a very key distinction. And the nonprofit initiatives, which many are so fantastic, and this is another reason for hope right now, because there is this kind of golden era, this proliferation of these nonprofit experiments but that's not a systemic fix to this journalism crisis. That's not going to make sure that all communities have access, that all news deserts suddenly have some local news media. And I really, no matter what your ideological predisposition is, I simply don't see another way of, of doing that other than through a public system. So how? So let's talk about the mechanics of the design of that. I mean, we have the CBC in Canada, so I think when people hear hear about public broadcasters or public journalism, that's broadly what people imagine. Um, of course, public broadcasters were built for a different era as well. Um, that's true. And and so so what does a public option look like in the internet age and the world of platforms and our current media environment? Yeah, so this is where, where I would start to get wildly utopian um, and go from like cynic to crazy idealist. Basically, the ideal would be for there to be a public media center in every community that basically makes sure that there are local journalists covering local issues that is publicly accountable, that is owned and controlled by local communities. And this should be federally guaranteed, but locally governed. Um, and, you know, we could think of it as like a kind of post office. In fact, one of my proposals is to convert post offices into these public media centers 
And they also should provide municipal community, community broadband services. Um, so, you know, that would be almost that, back to their original role. That's right. There's something yeah. poetic about that. Um, so yeah. And, and in fact, there is, this isn't just like pie in the sky. There is a thriving public media center in Urbana, Illinois, in the middle of the cornfields where I did my graduate work, they actually bought the local downtown, uh, post office building and it serves as this community media hub to this day. Um, so this, you know, this is like a, uh, you know, proof of concept. This is something that we could do in, there are over 30,000 post offices across the country. That's public infrastructure. We could put it to good use. So, I mean, I guess I'm trying to get a, a, a clear picture of what this would actually look like in practice. I mean, where does it mean I would consume it on TV? Does it mean I would listen to it on the radio? Does it mean they'd be publishing on Facebook? Like all of the above? Like this is all of the all of the above. And that is part of the problem too, as you already noted, that when people hear public broadcasting, uh, you know, a lot of in many countries, not just the US, public broadcasters traditionally have not provided local journalism, local news coverage, they're more of sort of a national service. So this really would be a restructuring, a repurposing and there are individual uh, public broadcast stations around the U.S. that have already started doing this. In fact, they even call themselves public media, not public broadcasting. Um, so, you know, I, that would be that would be the shift. But I also think local control is important. And here again, I pull from some concrete history in the, in the U.S. Uh, what happened? Uh, uh, an experiment during the uh, Johnson administration that one of the more controversial things he did in his anti-poverty programs was to have these community action programs, which basically these programs had to be, at least to some extent, run by members of the community. And basically the communities themselves who were receiving the funds were also involved in determining how those funds were being allocated. I think the same thing would apply to these public media centers. And that's key. That also cuts against this this constant, though legitimate concern that as soon as you have direct public subsidies, you're going to have government, you know, it's going to become state owned and controlled. And we have to make sure that can't happen. I want to talk about that um, challenge of bias and funding. I have lots of concerns around it, around platform funding initiatives for journalism as well. Right. And we're getting into this moment certainly in the in the Canadian debate and similarly in other countries where we have we may have two dominant funding mechanisms for journalism outside of com direct commercial interests um, one is a labor tax credit that the government put in place so you mentioned vouchers and we went the subsidization route right then we will write off 30% of journalistic labor. But the consequence of that is that somebody has to decide who's a journalist. And that arguably creates certain incentives and whatever. But the other place we're heading is in part a consequence of the media bargaining code in Australia is this rush of platform funding going into the journalism space. Um, and it's happening around the world. And it is opaque. We don't know how much is going for what. We don't know what conditions are being put on this money. And there are now reports of journalistic organizations getting 20, 30% of their total revenue directly from platforms. 
there's a real problem there. Um, so that was a very long way of asking. Um, if the market isn't going to solve this problem, and we're going to rely on subsidization of various forms, what's our mechanism for preserving journalistic integrity in either of those models? Yeah, that's a great question. And I share your concerns about this. And, you know, we've talked about this uh, back in the, you know, the before times, but <laughs> there, it, it's not as if, I mean, again, you could always say, is this better than nothing? And I, you know, I think you could say, yes, it is. And, you know, our news organizations are desperate. We need to find money for them somehow, but there's such an easier, better way of doing this, which is to have the platforms put their money, whether the, whether we're just flat out taxing them or however we're coercing them, um, put their money into a public media fund so that it's not going directly back to the commercial publishers, many of whom are themselves complicit in this journalism crisis. And by that means, we could almost, and one way of thinking of it is democratically laundering this money, right? We're democratizing the resources and then making democratic decisions about where we can make sure that money goes, especially towards news deserts or to, to, to marginalized communities that have never been well served by the commercial system. So I feel like that is a key point that I'd like to see happening. And, the, you know, British reformers have had proposals like that. It's not like no one's coming up with that idea, but unfortunately we're all the sort of like knee jerk uh, response is like, oh, we just have to have what ha what's happened in Australia is that, Platforms need to give more money back to the publishers, and that's that's not how we should be framing this. Yeah, it just that idea of a trust of some sort or some sort of inter intermediary that is responsible for the money, either from governments or from platforms or any significantly interested group, just seems so obvious. I, don't, I just don't know why that's not more of a dominant part of this discussion. Like, surely. Journalists, of all people, should be skeptical of money, industrial money, come flowing into their, to their institutions without constraint and without oversight. It's, it's a disconnect where journalists, even the most left-leaning journalists, when it comes to taking money straight from government, they become hardcore libertarian, right? They, no way will they do that. Oh my God, the biggest pushback against the labor subsidy in Canada was from journalists who right. were aghast at this option. And yet they're taking huge money from platforms now. Right. They'll take money from platforms, from advertisers, from corporate entities and so-called benevolent billionaires. But for some reason, you know, and again, I mean, we should be concerned about direct money going from government to, to media institutions, but that's, that's not an either or here. I mean, we can create, as you say, these intermediaries or, you know, as long as it's being democratized, right, it's going to other, to local entities, to autonomous groups, not connected to the government. There are ways, there are safeguards to put in place. A lot of democratic societies around the world have figured this out with their public broadcasting systems. You know, I think we can do this around our, you know, our print, our, our, our publishers as well. But it's going to, again, this is like a discursive, almost like a psychological problem that we have to contend with as much as it is, it's just like a, you know, a, a policy issue. Yeah. One other concern I have a lot about this journalism discussion and the subsidization of journalism conversation is that it's, it's really focused on the supply side of the problem. And there seems to be an assumption in a lot of these conversations, particularly among journalists, that more journalism is the solution to a whole host of these problems. And some of that I find can miss the bigger, the, the, the challenges in the ecosystem itself. And that just flooding Facebook with better journalism 
if it doesn't reach an audience and isn't amplified within the ecosystem, might just be putting good money after bad. So I'm wondering if you see this problem of funding journalism in this broader context, where we really need to get at some of these structural incentives inside our ecosystem as a whole, um, which means looking at but broader governance ideas than just making sure journalism exists. That's right. And again, part of this is the framing problem. But if we're looking to just shore up these failing commercial models, you're absolutely right. If we just pump more money into that, it's just going to create more noise. It's not necessarily going to change the quality of, of our of our news content. But if we r radically restructure the entire system from the ground up, I, th I think we're going to produce a different kind of news content, a different kind of journalism. And really, at the end, that's what I think our ultimate objective should be is to reinvent journalism, not just go back to some golden era. Um, it's really, you know, liberating journalists to be journalists, but also to make sure that they are serving the communities, you know, that they purportedly serve. And we can do this if we do change those, those incentives and we unhook journalism from the market, from these commercial imperatives and democratize the institutions. So just, just one last final sort of closing here. I mean, whenever you end up in a in a place where it's a capitalism problem or it's a systemic failure problem, the solutions are are a pretty big paradigm shift. And I think that's a real thread in your work, which is that this is about changing markets. It's about changing society. It's a, these are these are big things that aren't going to be tweaked away, um, and requires ideological shift as well. And, and I think right. you position yourself in one, a place in that ideological spectrum that, that is, is getting increasing voice at the moment, like big progressive solutions for big structural global problems. Um, and, and I wonder if what you think about this moment, like, is it, is it exciting that we're having these debates? We're talking about the Green New Deal. We're talking about public options for media. We're talking about massive infrastructure plans, like... What's going on here? And is it exciting? It's exciting. It's also a terrifying moment, um, especially when we think about the, the health of our planet and, you know, the future for, for our children. But, but I do, I, I agree with you. And this is where my optimism really starts coming through, especially when I talk to my students and younger people today, they're not enthralled to market fundamentalism the way that previous generations have been. Um, and also because the problems are becoming so glaringly severe that uh, the scope of these problems require radical measures, radical alternatives. So I, I do take some hope uh, from, from all this and, and, see, and I'll just seeing experimentation, things are, things are moving. We increasingly, I'm able to say, look, this is working. Look what New Jersey just did with their local journalism. Look what's happening in Colorado. They have this chain of, of nonprofit cooperative news organizations. I mean, we're going to be seeing more and more of that polling data is showing that people actually, even Americans actually trust public media, relatively speaking, more so than, than other outlets that care about their local journalism. Um, so I do, you know, that's, ex we do need a green new deal for journalism. And I'm hopeful that we'll see something like that in the next few years. But otherwise, we know what's going to happen. We're going to keep watching the market drive journalism in the ground, really making the case for these radical arguments that this is what happens if you just leave it up to the market. Well, I'm sure glad you're working on this and pushing the debate forward. So thanks for talking about it. 
Thank you, Taylor. Really enjoyed talking to you about this stuff. Hopefully in person sometimes. Yes, a lot of this stuff deserves a a beer or a whiskey. So uh, I hope we can do that in person. In celebration or commiseration. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. (laughs) Take care, Taylor. Good talking to you. That was my conversation with Victor Picard. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation and produced by Antica Productions. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every other week.